Father, we give you thanks for the things you've been teaching us this semester um, in this letter by John. Um, help us, Father, as we, we consider all that's going on to see that it's about Jesus, uh, to find our security knowing that he has won the victory in the cross. And uh, so we pray that even as we might face different persecutions and struggles in this life, uh, we know that Jesus has it all in hand. So we thank you for the confidence that that can give us in life. Amen. I wonder if you have ever thought of writing your own life story, an autobiography. Uh, Kathleen has. <laughs> uh, have you dreamt that by the time you reach a ripe old age, you will have accomplished so much in life contributed your bucket loads to society and you decide to write your life story, sharing your secrets to life for an eagerly awaiting world. I wonder what would be in your autobiography. The reality is though, most of us never do. As you get older, you realise that you're not the game changer you thought you were. But despite this, every single one of us is having our life story written. Our thoughts, our words, our actions are all being recorded in a book. And it's being recorded far more accurately than we ever would if we wrote it. And one day this book will be opened, will be read out in public, and our lives will be scrutinised. That's what Revelation chapter 20 tells us. As Jesus returns on the judgment day, the living and the dead, the great and small, will stand before the throne of God, on that day, there'll be no more writing to be done. There'll be pens down. It's too late to change the ending of it. Our stories will be read out, and as the last page is, is read, what awaits is either the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, or eternal hell. And this is the climax of these chapters in Revelation. With all that's going on with dragons and beasts, weddings and wars, Angels and flesh-eating birds and lakes of fire. What's in those books is really important. Is my name in the book of life? What is my eternal destination? Well, the way you get your name into that book depends entirely on how you treat the main character of Revelation in this life. It depends on how you treat Jesus in your life. Tonight we get another picture of what Jesus is like in these chapters. We've already seen him in the previous ones. He is the slaughtered lamb. He is the victorious lion. There have been joyful songs written about him. People and angels bowing down and worshipping at his throne. But don't get caught up in all the imagery of this. Get caught up in Jesus himself. And treat him the way that he deserves. Because our eternal destination rides on it. But before our biographies are read out on the day of judgment... At the end of chapter 20, there's a couple of scenes that happen first. And the first one, at the start of chapter 19, is the wedding celebration. Uh, last week, we saw in chapter 17 and 18, we saw the destruction of the prostitute. She's gone, and now it's time for the bride. Her wedding day has come, it's her time to shine. It's the wedding of the Lamb. And the Lamb, we know that that's Jesus. And he's getting married to his bride, and that's the church, the people of God. There are vast multitudes in heaven singing hallelujah on this day and hallelujah just simply means praise the Lord, praise God. 
salvation and glory and power belong to our God. That's what they're singing. Um, but it is a, it's, keep reading in chapter 19, it is a strange song to be singing at a wedding, isn't it? If you look in verse 2, it tells us that the song is about the judging of the prostitute. How'd the wedding singer go singing that one? <laughs> singing about God's vengeance upon her because she spilled the blood of God's people. But it's not a strange song in, as we look at it though. It's a victory song. It's praising God because he has won. After destroying all of his enemies, God's reign is now unhindered and it's time to party. That's the picture we're getting here in chapter 19. The scene, it's almost like a fairy tale. And the wedding couldn't go ahead until the prince brought peace in his kingdom, he's won all the battles, and then he could finally come and whisk his bride away. See verse 6. We say there, Hallelujah, because the Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Can you see why they're singing? He's begun to reign. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has prepared herself. So this scene, it celebrates the reign of Jesus that has begun. He's now coming to take his bride, the people of God, to be united forever in heaven. If you keep looking in verse 9, we see the wedding guests are mentioned there. Now, this is one wedding that you wouldn't want to miss for the world. But you see that all who come are just fully blessed. But who are the guests at the wedding? Now, this is where we can't take the wedding metaphor too far because the bride is also the guest at her own wedding. If you're a follower of Jesus on that day, you've got both the bride and the guests. Uh, then in verse 11, we come to a new scene. John is given a new vision here. Um, and in it, we see a white horse. Is it Jesus here? Is he arriving at his wedding riding a, uh, a Camarillo white horse? Anyone know Camarillo white horse? Any horse people? Uh, some. Like famous white horses. Anyway. Um, Jesus, is it him coming to, to his wedding here? Um, you know, ladies, is this your dream wedding entrance for your bridegroom, that he would come charging down the altar on his white steed? Maybe. But there's no mistake here that the rider is Jesus. Um, he's described in the same way that he was in chapter 1. He's got blazing eyes and many crowns. Um, but here, his robe, it's not white and bright like the bride. In verse 13, have a look there, it's dripping in blood. Now that would be a bit of a clangor rocking up to the altar to be married in that, wouldn't it? <laughs> but he's actually not riding to the altar. He's not riding to his wedding. He's riding into battle. Um, we see he's got a big tat on his thigh and it's embroidered on his robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But whose blood is this that's on his, on his gown? On his robe. Well, verse 15 tells us that it's all the enemies of God. They've been trampled to death in the winepress of God's wrath. Now, we saw that a couple of weeks ago in chapter 14, didn't we? That imagery of, of God's enemies being crushed in the winepress. Um, and so here we're just having another angle of the same event, the final judgment day. Uh, so his robe, robe it's, it's stained by blood, um, picks up imagery from Isaiah chapter 63. Go and have a read of that in, in your own time. Um, uh, it's, it talks about God's enemies being trampled to death and, and the blood kind of staining the robe. And so, uh, someone's asking him, why is your robe all crimson? Uh, it's because of the, the blood of, of God's enemies, um, Isaiah 63. Um, 
as we, we, we keep going in Revelation, they've been slain by the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. So picture him, he's, he's on this white horse, uh, he's in the, the, the robe that's dripping in blood, and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. Um, again, it's, 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 it's not a literal sword. Uh, we know elsewhere in Ephesians 6, the, the, the sword is the word of God. Uh, so that's what's coming out of his mouth, God's word. That's how he judges and how he rules the nations. And as Jesus rides out into this battle, John sees something else in verse 17. An angel cries in a loud voice, and, and this angel gathers all of the birds of the air. Now, the birds, they've also come for a wedding, uh, for a banquet, but not the wedding banquet. This is the great supper of God. And, and this banquet, well, that's pretty gruesome, isn't it? In verse 18, see what the meat is. Now, it's, it's not the pork at the, um, the Filipino um, celebration. The meat here is the flesh of kings and commanders and mighty men, horses and their riders, everyone, it says, slave and free, small and great. It's a pretty horrific banquet. These birds are going to come in. And now this battle that, that it's uh, speaking about here is, is the great final battle, the, the battle of Armageddon, um, where all the enemies of God are going to come at him. They're all slaughtered pretty quickly, aren't they? Verses 9 and 21 to 21 give the details of this battle. The beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies, they gather to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But it's all pretty anticlimactic because in verse 20, the beast and the false prophet are captured and they're chucked into the lake of fire. And all the rest are killed by the sword from Jesus' mouth. Not much of a battle, is it? It's because Jesus has already won. He's already won the battle on the cross. And so that gives us great hope and confidence in this life because no matter the power of Satan, of, of evil empires and authorities, no matter the severity of persecution that we might face, Jesus will quickly and easily bring his judgment on his enemies. There's no doubt that Jesus will be victorious. Now the birds are called even before the battle starts. He's that confident. Now that gets us to chapter 20. Uh, where this strange 1,000 years comes about. Now, over the years, there's, there's been all sorts of um, confusion and discussion about this chapter, and, and what you think is going on here all depends on how you read the 1,000 years, the millennium. Um, if you've grown up going to church, some of you might never have even heard of this, um, but in other churches, they speak about it all the time. And the confusion is basically about when this 1,000-year reign of Jesus will be. Will this thousand years be before Jesus comes back, or will it be after? And as fiercely as some people kind of bang on about the millennium, the thousand years is only mentioned in this chapter of the Bible. So we need to be really careful we don't build a core doctrine with such limited information. Um, one of the reformers, John Calvin, uh, he, he, just, he says the, the discussions about uh, the millennium um, are fiction. He says it's childish to, to waste time kind of talking about it. Um, uh, so we need to be careful with it. We need to remember too the highly figurative nature of Revelation that we've seen. Your numbers are more symbolic than literal. Um, but, yeah, but, but these debates, they really need to be in perspective. Because what, what you think about it really doesn't matter too much. Uh, and no matter where you stand on this, Jesus is still coming back. Now whatever view you have on this thousand years, Jesus is still coming back. We can all agree on that. Um, and it's wrong to then draw a line in the sand and insist, you know, you've got to get this right to be a real Christian. Uh, it's just not that big an issue. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I want to spend just a bit of time explaining the, the different view, views to you. Um, but I want to look at the text first, and then we'll talk about the different views. So in verse 1, join me there, chapter 20. Um, an angel comes down from heaven, he's got a, a key and a big chain. And verse 2, he sees the dragon, so the angel sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who's the devil and Satan. You might remember seeing that back a few chapters earlier. Um, the dragon is Satan. Bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until a thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, because of God's word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for this thousand years. The rest of the dead, they didn't come to life until a thousand years were completed. Uh, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death, there's no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, he will go out and deceive the nations from the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, um, there in uh, Ezekiel, Gog is a evil ruler and Magog is the nation that he rules. Um, uh, so Satan's going to go and gather them for battle. The number is like the sand and the sea. They came up over the surface of the earth. They surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, here's the lowdown on these verses. Um, we see an angel binds Satan, throws him into the abyss for a thousand years. During that time, Jesus and his, his followers will rule with him. And then after the thousand years, Satan is released for a short time to wreak havoc. But he's quickly thrown into the lake of fire, into hell. Along with the beast, the, the false prophet, and the final day of judgment. Uh, so that's basically what these verses are talking about. Um, let me give you the rundown on the different views. Um, and I'll tell you what I, I think seems to fit best. There's, there's actually three main views. And of those views, uh, one of them has a variation. So there's four views, four different views. Uh, we don't have the time to go into them heaps. Um, they can be quite elaborate. There's many variations within them. Um, but I'll start with post-millennialism. And we've got a slide that we'll, we'll flick up here for you with four different views. Um, Post-millennialism, you can see it's kind of the, the yucky, yellowy-green colour there. Um, number three. Um, so this view believes that Jesus will come back after a literal thousand years. Post-millennium. Jesus returns after the millennium. And in this view, um, yeah, no one really knows when that thousand years will start. But when it does... Uh, they think that, that things will start to get better and better on earth as the years go on. The gospel will have greater influence, the church will grow in size, um, there will eventually be peace on the earth as Jesus' rule dominates. Now this view was really popular um, up until about a hundred years ago. Uh, anyone know why this has gone out of vogue over the last century? Yeah, World War I, World War II. These massive wars, and I'm thinking, you know, 
Um, before then, Jesus is going to um, you know, start this thousand years, but then things kind of went uh, pretty crazy with the world wars, and, and I think, oh, maybe that view isn't really happening. Um, so that's post-millennialism. It's not um, a huge thing nowadays. Um, I want to tell you about premillennialism. Um, and, and this, this uh, thinking is that Jesus will come back before the thousand years. So there's two, the top two there are the, uh, the premillennial views. Um, now, premillennialism is very popular in America. Um, you might have seen one of my favourite TV shows, Doomsday Preppers. Um, people are kind of getting ready for the tribulation and in the years leading up to Jesus' return. Um, in their understanding of the thousand years, uh, they think Jesus returns in chapter 19 on his horse that we've seen in Revelation. Yeah? He returns for the great battle, and chapter 20 then describes what happens after he returns. Jesus reigns for a thousand years on earth then with his people in peace and justice, and then the judgment day will come after that. Uh, now, premillennialism generally reads Revelation, uh, especially chapters 19 and 20, as a straight line of history that one event happens after the other. Um, uh, not, not really the way that we've seen it as we've gone through. With, we've seen with, you know, the different angles of the same events. Um, now, a popular variation of this view is the second one there, um, called dispensational premillennialism. Yeah, big words, aren't they? Um, the main difference with this view is the concept of rapture. Now, Jesus, they say that Jesus' second coming comes in two stages. In the first stage, uh, Jesus raptures the Christians out of the world into the sky. And those remaining in the world, the people who are left behind, will face the great tribulation for seven years. And then Jesus will return for the second stage, um, his third coming, uh, the battle of Armageddon. And then he begins the thousand year reign on the earth with his people. And then after the thousand years comes a judgment day. And this is a fairly recent view. It's been around for about 150 years. Um, and it began with an American called John Nelson Darby. Uh, the main problem with this view um, is, is I think that the rapture is actually a, a myth. I don't think the Bible teaches that Jesus will come in secret and snatch Christians up into the air to meet him. I don't think it teaches that we'll be with him for seven years up there while uh, the rest of the world goes to poop. Um, another problem with, with uh, the rapture is, is that the Bible always teaches that final judgment happens at the same time as Jesus' second coming. They're the same event. Uh, Jesus comes and judgment happens. There's a couple of passages where people who believe in a rapture go to. Um, I've got them up here. The first one is Matthew chapter 24. Um, you, you might have heard this passage, you know, two people in a field, one is taken and one is left. Two women grinding in a mill, one taken and one left. Uh, the pilot of a plane is raptured and all the passengers are left to crash and burn. Um, that third one's not in the Bible, in case you're wondering. Um, but it is in a popular book uh, called Left Behind. Um, and there's a movie that stars Nicolas Cage in it as well. Um, and on the plane, you know, all you see are the clothes of the Christians kind of on the seat because they've disappeared. But Matthew 24, actually, if, if, you, if you go and have a look at it, isn't talking about people being secretly beamed up to heaven. It's talking about on the judgment day, when judgment comes, some people will escape and some will be condemned. Uh, it compares it to the days of Noah. 
Um, uh, yeah, yeah, as the days are nowhere, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. Um, so, as in the days are known, it will be the same when Jesus comes. And in the Noah story, uh, it's talking about the flood in Genesis chapter 7, uh, it comes suddenly onto people while we're eating and drinking and getting married. And in Noah's account, it's actually the unrighteous who are taken away in judgment. They are caught up in the flood. It's only the faithful ones, Noah and his family, who are left behind. But the main point in the, the Matthew passage is that it's going to happen suddenly. And you can see that about the things around there. But you'll learn since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. People will just be going on their ordinary business and Jesus is going to come back for a judgment day. Now the second passage um, that people who believe in a rapture go to is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, and here it says that believers will be caught up into the clouds to meet Jesus. Um, and, and, and they believe that Christians will, will kind of disappear secretly, leaving the non-Christians on earth to carry out their business for their seven years. Um, but the passage here in 1 Thessalonians is all about the last day when, when Jesus appears and the dead are raised for judgment. The Thessalonians, they, they were worried about um, those who had died, that they would miss out on heaven. But Paul reassures them that they won't. Uh, he tells them that the second coming of Jesus is not going to be missed. It won't be secret. Jesus will descend with a shout, verse 16, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God. Remember, trumpets, as we've seen in Revelation, represent judgment. And the rising up in the air on this judgment day is to be an encouragement for believers. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage them that, that they won't be under God's judgment when Jesus returns. The dead won't be, and neither will those who are alive, but rather they'll be, they'll be safely up with Jesus, up in the air. They'll be protected by him. Uh, so that's uh, um, the yeah, premillennial views. If we go back to the first slide there again. Um, one final view. Oh, there is another one called panmillennialism. Um, people just believe it will pan out in the end. Um, uh, the, the, the final view, really, the fourth view, is, is one called amillennialism. Um, and this is what, what, what I believe. And, uh, and amillennialism doesn't mean that there is no millennium. Rather, the thousand years are symbolic. Now, just like the, the majority of numbers that we've seen in Revelation. It's symbolic of the period between Jesus' first and second coming. And at the end of this time, Jesus will come back for the day of judgment. So we're in the thousand years now. And so what we see in chapters 19 and 20, uh, Jesus comes in judgment in chapter 19, and then the thousand year reign in, in chapter 20, they're, they're, they're not one event after the other. As we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, we go back and forwards in time, uh, we see you know, it's the same events from different angles. And so in chapter 20, uh, in verses 1 to 6, we're taken back in time before the last battle that we saw happening in chapter 19. Um, and at the start of chapter 20, Satan is then thrown down into the abyss for a thousand years. And we came across the abyss back in chapter 9. A key to the abyss was given to the angel uh, to open and to close it according to God's purposes. Uh, and we saw that this... This showed us that God has authority over evil and the demonic realm. And here in chapter 20, we see that the abyss is being closed. And what this is telling us is that 
God's people are going to be protected during that thousand years. Uh, not physical protection, you know, we've seen that with the letters to, to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. Christians are still going to suffer in this world physically, but they're going to be spiritually protected. Satan can't bring spiritual harm to God's people. And I think that's what it's saying about Satan being thrown down into the abyss. He can't spiritually harm God's people. And this is because Jesus has already bound the strong man. He had his victory over Satan at the cross. And so now Satan has no power to, to deceive or to destroy the faith of the elect. Remember why Revelation was written? It was written to people in persecution um, to, to have confidence that, that Jesus will be with them and help them persevere to the end. Satan has no power to deceive or destroy the faith of the elect. Uh, so in this thousand years, uh, these last days between Jesus' first and second coming that we're in, God's people are spiritually safe. Satan is bound and restrained, is thrown into the abyss. He's not thrown into the lake of fire yet, that comes shortly. And so Satan, he's, he's bound in, in the abyss. And while he's there, he can't stop the gospel spreading. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came to earth, Satan, he, he was unrestrained then. And so the gospel message, it didn't go out from Israel to the nations like it was intended to. But now, because of Jesus' victory on the cross, Satan's power has been diminished, and the gospel can go out to every tribe and language and people. So Satan's binding means that now is the time for gospel preaching, so that the nations might put their trust in Jesus. Uh, then we get to verses 7 to 10, and here it's, um, and you can see in verse 7 there, this is after the thousand years are completed. After the thousand years, Satan is released from the abyss for a short time. And in this time, what does he do? Well, he goes and gathers all the nations together for the final battle. And back in chapter 19 again, the battle of Armageddon. Uh, but it all fizzles out pretty quickly once again. Fire comes down from heaven in verse 9 and consumes them all. Uh, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. He's there, joins the beast and the false prophet and everyone who is opposed to God. As we get to that point, we're like, oh, at last, evil is finished. Satan and his armies have been destroyed. What a relief. So we come then to verses 11 to 15, to the end of all history, where every human is, is brought into the presence of God to stand before his throne and to give account for their lives. Uh, join me in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So the picture we get here is that there's a great big pile, a big stack of books next to the throne of Jesus. And what's in those books is everything we've ever done. Every thought, every attitude, every deed, every word. And we are judged according to that. 
pretty scary thought, isn't it? God recording everything that we've ever done. And all of our dirty laundry being aired on that last day should send shivers up and down our spine. There are many things that we're all ashamed of. <coughs> but next to this pile of books is one book. And inside this book, and not records of what we've done, it's just a list of names. Um, yeah, I know you guys are, get bored reading genealogies in the Bible. But this is not a boring book. Because as the names are being read out, you know, we'll be on the edge of our seats. We'll have everyone's attention. Whose names are in it? This is the book of life. And all those whose names are there will escape the second death you know, of being thrown into the lake of fire into eternal torment. Those whose names are in it, they'll see the new heavens and the new earth that fills the last two chapters of Revelation that we'll get to next week. But how do you get your name into this book? That's a big question, isn't it? Thankfully, God does things differently to the uni. It's Judgment Day at uni this week, isn't it? <laughs> with exams, assignments. Um, but with the uni, all you need to do is to get 50%. That's enough to pass. But to pass God's examination on the Judgment Day, you need 100%. Anything less, and you're stuffed. No mistakes ever. No bad things written in those piles of books. That's how you get in. The requirement to get into that one book is nothing less than the perfection of Jesus. And none of this happened on our own. We all deserve to be slain and trampled by Jesus on his horse because of our sin. To be in that wine press. The only way into that book is if the blood of the Lamb has washed you. Only if Jesus has bore the judgment in your place. Only if Jesus has given you that pure white linen gown, the wedding dress. That's the only way we can get into that book. The judgment day is, um, is, is coming. Where are we going to be? Now, with all of this crazy imagery of Revelation, trying to work out what it will be like when Jesus returns, what is this thousand years all about, all of that means nothing compared to having your name in that book. Absolutely nothing in comparison. Judgment Day is coming. And on that day, we will all stand before the throne of God. And there's two places where the judgment will fall on that day. Our judgment is either done on Jesus at the cross or by us, on us. Oh, sorry, by Jesus, on us, as he sends unforgiven sinners to hell. And Jesus either takes the judgment on himself in his death or he pours it out on us. There is a way of forgiveness and mercy, of being snatched out from that fiery lake and it's found through trusting in Jesus. That's the only way we can get our names into that book, isn't it? In his death on the cross, trusting in that, trusting in his resurrection to life. And as we do that, he can give us everlasting life. And then we'll join with, with people from every tribe and language, gathering around the throne of God, singing, Hallelujah. 
We can't ever earn our way into the book of life by our good works. We can't bribe God. It's only by his grace, his gift, his undeserved favour that he opens up the way for us through the cross of Jesus, through his victory over sin and death and evil. As you think about your own life story, what's your biography going to be like? In the end, it doesn't really matter what your accomplishments are, what your marks will be in these exams. What matters is if your name is in that book. And on the day that Jesus returns, well, it's going to be too late to get into it now. You can't rewrite the last chapter of your autobiography where time itself stops. And when the marker says, pens down, that's it. We don't know the day or the hour when Jesus will return, but he tells us that today is the day of salvation. Tonight is the night to do business with God before it's too late. Come and see me after if tonight is right. And for those whose names are already in the book of life, be living that life today. Jesus' bride is to be spotless and pure. She's to testify about the bridegroom until the day he comes for her to be speaking about Jesus and the good news of the gospel. She's to be faithful to him and not sleep around by living lives in opposition to Jesus. Those who are in the book of life, like the bride, are to prepare herself for that day. What a glorious day that will be and be brought into the new heavens and new earth. Friends, Jesus is returning. Will you be ready for that day? It would be great to hear your questions now on, on, uh, on this passage. Penny? Um, the annual and thousand years, would you also call that the last days? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the last days that we've seen throughout Revelation so far. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. T? So Steve, it talks about in verse 4 how... Chapter... Oh, chapter 20, verse 4, sorry. Yep. How those that have been beheaded because of the testimony of God's word, um, God's not worship feast, they were also raised then. Are they separate from the people that are raised from verse 11 onwards, where it talks about when the sea gives up their dead and Hades gives up their dead. Mm. Yeah, so the, the first group in verse 4 are the, the believers, um, are raised and rule with, with Jesus um, in the heavenly realms during this thousand years. Right. Um, the one in verse 11 and following is the final judgment day when believers and unbelievers alike will be brought to the throne of God. Um, particularly, the, you know, the, the believers will be ruling with Jesus in that time. Um, so they'll be brought in, but the, the, the dead, uh, the, the unbelievers will be brought up before the throne of God and the books will be opened. And, uh, and so then, there. do you think that those who those who die, do you think that they either go up to heaven uh, or hell straight away, or do you think that um, they the uh, yep. wait till judgment day? Yep. Yeah, I, I think what it, it's saying here is that those um, 
who, who die will, will wait until Jesus' second coming and on that day um, the judgment will be pronounced. Yeah. And how do you then reconcile that with Jesus telling them that on the cross today will be with Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and so that's, so that's, I reckon that's the guy in verse 4 um, where Jesus says, you'll be with me. Uh, and uh, and you know, the, it's called the, the doctrine of the intermediate state. What happens between when we when we physically die and when Jesus returns? Um, and the Bible doesn't really say heaps about that, so we can't push things too far. Um, but what I, I think is is going on there is that um, the when Christians die, like we see in twenty verse four, they go to, and, and be with Jesus. Uh, we saw it in the 1 Thessalonians passage as well. Um, uh, the, the thing is that Christians are always united to Jesus. And, and so for the thief on the cross, I, I reckon that even though he's physically dead, spiritually he will be um, with Jesus at that time. Uh, and as Jesus is uh, judging the earth and ruling over the earth in these last days, um, uh, the believers are going to be with who have died will be with Jesus, um, not pouring out that, that judgment, but kind of saying, yes, you know, just and true are your judgments, um, and kind of, yeah, um, praising Jesus for his, his judgments in that way. Um, yeah, but the, what happens in between those times, yeah, the Bible doesn't really say a whole lot about, um, and so we have to hold those views fairly, fairly loosely. Um, I understand that the Bible doesn't say much on this, but I'm noticing there is a tiny little gap in your amillennialism right at the end there, where I'm assuming that's where Satan gets released from um, the abyss. Yeah. Um, you're talking about Satan being bound now and can't attack us spiritually, mm -hmm. so to speak. What's that little gap there? Yeah. Yeah, so um, uh, let's see. So in verse. Um, Verse 3, um, Satan is thrown into the abyss, closed with a seal on it. Uh, after that, a uh, thousand years goes by, after that he'll be released for a short time. So in that time, I think, is where... Uh, um, we've got to remember that this is, is kind of spiritual. There's not really going to be a dragon who's going to come and, um, you know, and muster all the, the troops and getting all these grasshoppers we saw earlier and, um, and the beasts and things coming. Um, but what it is, is, is symbolising, I think, is, is that uh, after a thousand years, Satan will be released and he's going to muster um, all of the enemies of God, you know, whoever it is um, that's alive at that time, um, will do a final onslaught against the church, against the Christians. Um, but compared to a thousand years, a short time is, is just like that. And before we know it, you know, he's amassed this big battle, but the battle doesn't take place, does it? Um, Jesus comes, you know, um, burns them up with fire in chapter 20, um, destroys them with the sword of his mouth in chapter 19, um, in the Battle of Armageddon in chapter 16. It's all over um, before it really starts. Uh, so perhaps that's what it is. But I didn't make it, so, um, yeah. I'm just curious as to whether there was kind of like a distinct difference with that get there when Satan gets released if that's what it is uh, representing. Yeah, yeah. 
Might have been. So in chapter 20 again, mm-hmm. it says in verse 10, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Mm-hmm. And then later on, when it talks about those in verse 15, anyone not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, it doesn't say where they'll be uh, tormented day and night forever and ever. What, what happens? Uh, I think it's, it's yeah, um, it's a parallelism that what it's saying about there is the same as happening there. It just doesn't fill it out because it's already given the fuller description previously. So it'll still be the, yeah, um, the torment day and night forever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, about people being possessed, yeah, like, um, yeah, I reckon that's the case. But if they're Christian, absolutely not. Because Jesus has come and, uh, like it says in, the, um, uh, in, in Matthew 12, I think it is. Um, um, yeah, Matthew 12. Verse 22 um, talks about a kingdom being divided, uh, can't stand. Um, you know, Jesus, people are saying, you know, the reason why Jesus can drive out demons is because his demon possessed himself. So demon possession is real. Um, but the, the Jews are uh, um, saying, Jesus, the reason why you're able to drive them out is because you're from Satan. But he says, no, no, Satan. Um, uh, if Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself, how his kingdom stand, but Jesus has come to establish his kingdom, it's going to stand. And so in verse 29, Jesus says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob the house. Um, and so Jesus is saying, you know, he's the strong man there. He's going in and he's, he's breaking into your house and he is liberating you. He's kicking out Satan uh, and then he's making his people his own possession. Um, Another good spot to go. Uh, we'll be looking more at this at NTE. Um, shameless plug, get it on there. Um, engaging with the supernatural is the theme. Um, we see in Ephesians 6, verse 10 Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armour of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. Uh, so here, you know. He, here the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians. Put on the full armour of God so you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armour of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything, to take your stand. Um, now this needs to be read in context with Ephesians chapter 1, where Jesus has already um, destroyed Satan and evil. He's already got the victory. He's already won it. Um, but we're still engaged in a spiritual battle. Uh, and so we need to put on the armour of God. So Satan, for Christians, Satan will still try and attack us. The way we stand firm is by remembering the gospel that Jesus has died and has risen, and we put on his armour. Um, and all stuff from the Old Testament, you can follow up all of those cross-references there if you do that. Um, but the offensive weapon that we use against Satan as he tries to attack us is in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. And that's what comes out of Jesus' mouth, his sword. Um, uh, it's his word. So the way we go on the attack against the devil, when you feel like he's trying to pull you down, go back to the scriptures. Go back to the gospel. Jesus has died and he has defeated Satan. And you have no power here. That's what the cross has achieved for us. So, yeah. Actually, changes us to want to do good, to want to be righteously. Yeah. 